Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In 2016 alone, black males between 15 and 34 were nine times more likely than other Americans to be killed by law enforcement officers. In fact, nearly one in every thousand will die at the hands of a police officer. In his latest book, Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights, constitutional scholar Erwin Chemerinsky argues that that's no accident, but the result of a body of court decisions over the last half century that allow the police and the courts to undermine constitutional protections against self-incrimination and presume that suspects, especially people of color, are guilty before being charged. The book is published by Livright and brings Professor Chemerinsky, the dean of the law school at the University of California, Berkeley, to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Such a pleasure to talk with you. You begin your book by noting that these days, much of the attention to the problems of police violence and racism in law enforcement fails too often to blame to place any of the blame on the Supreme Court, although that kind of behavior has been condoned by the judicial system over the years. Yes, that's the thesis of the book. I think that we have overlooked the extent to which the Supreme Court has contributed to the problems of excess of police force and particularly racialized policing. There are several constitutional provisions that are meant to control and constrain the police, but the Supreme Court has not enforced them. Not now and not historically throughout the United States. The uh, Supreme, the uh, Constitution, um, not only it not only constrains police, it limits what police can do to protect the rights of us all. I'm quoting you, including those who are suspected and accused of crimes. The Fourth Amendment limits the ability of the police to stop, detain, arrest, and search people. The Fifth Amendment limits how the police can question people because it provides all of us the privilege against self-incrimination. Due process is supposed to limit how the police conduct eyewitness identification, like lineups. But if you look at the whole sweep of American history, including now in the last few decades, the Supreme Court has failed to enforce these provisions. And it's reflected what goes on on the streets every day. Studies have been done, for example, in New York and all major cities, but how much more likely police are to stop people of color than white individuals holding all other variables constant. And that's because the Supreme Court has handed out decisions that allow this. Hadn't very few cases that involved the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments to the Constitution come before the Supreme Court before 1953? You point out that there was little in the way of formal policing in this country until the late 19th century, and municipalities relied on on night watchmen who who might occasionally arrest a presumed wrongdoer. Uh, It was a system that was inexpensive, was cheap to administer. You're absolutely right. Policing existed throughout American history, and for that matter, probably in every society in world history, but not in the way we know of it today. Organized police forces didn't come to be developed until well after the Civil War. Prior to that, what you would have would be a sheriff or a marshal. And if it was necessary to try to go apprehend somebody, the sheriff or the marshal would gather together a posse. Actually, the first organized police forces in the United States were slave patrols Mm. that were created in the South to round up escaped slaves. 
New York was one of the first cities to develop an organized police force, but you don't see it until well after the Civil War. Well, uh, since you bring that up, um, is the Supreme Court action regarding the Texas abortion law part of this story? It allows private citizens to sue anyone who aids, abets, and performs an abortion, which sounds similar to me in some ways to how the Fugitive Slave Act worked. I had not thought of the parallel, but certainly I see it as you speak of it. It used to be early in American history that the way we enforced the laws was to require people to come forward. A victim of a crime would have to be the one responsible for prosecuting it. Now what Texas is trying to do to avoid judicial review is rather than have the government enforce the law against abortion, to leave it to private citizens. Now, the reason for that is if government officials play any role in enforcing the law, people can go to court and get an injunction to stop the government officials. But if the government officials play no role, then there's no one to sue. And that's what Texas did, and from my perspective. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court didn't see through this and didn't say, under Roe versus Wade, no state can prevent abortions before viability. And that's just what Texas did. Well, they did have precedent. The, uh, the Supreme Court uh, allowed the Fugitive Slave Law Act to, to remain. So uh, this sounds to me like a weird kind of precedent in, in, at work. It is, though I have to point out that Article 4, Section 3 of the Constitution had the Fugitive Slave Clause that specifically said that if a slave escaped from, say, a slave state, to a free state, the slave had to be returned to the owner. It's one of several places where, tragically, the Constitution protected the institution of slavery. Uh, until, uh, well, from 1833 on until the 1920s, didn't the Supreme Court hold that the Bill of Rights didn't apply to the states? It's correct. In fact, from the very beginning of American history until the 20th century, the Supreme Court did not apply the Bill of Rights to what state and local governments did. It might surprise people to know that the right to have a lawyer in state court in a capital case where there's a possible death sentence didn't exist until 1932. Hmm. The right to have a lawyer in state court when there's just possibility of a prison sentence, even life in prison, didn't exist until Gideon versus Wainwright into 1963. Freedom of speech, which we all cherish, didn't apply to state and local governments until 1925. And so part of what explains why there were no Supreme Court decisions about policing till late in the 19th century is there wasn't a federal police force then, and state and local governments didn't have to comply with the Bill of Rights. So, so why do you think things changed starting in the 1920s when the court interpreted the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to incorporate the protections of the Bill of Rights and, and applied them to the states as well to the federal government? I think our sense of individual rights changed. I think we as a society came to value the liberties much more. I think also the respect for states as states wanes some that to not apply the Bill of Rights to the states would then mean that we're trusting state governments to do anything they wanted with regard to individual freedoms. And I think that trust in state government lessened 
And by the time you get to the 20th century, the combination of more concern for individual liberties and less concern for states led the Supreme Court increasingly to say, the Bill of Rights applies to state and local governments, just like to the federal government. And that's something we take for granted today. But Jim Crow was still allowed in the 20s. Very much so. Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 articulated the doctrine of separate but equal. And so when I say there was more concern for individual rights, that doesn't mean that there was an end to Jim Crow, an end to racism. Of course there wasn't. Didn't the Warren Court impose significant constitutional limits on policing between 1953 and 1969? Uh, could it be called pro-defendant, uh, unlike other courts? I'll give you a typical law professor answer, yes and no. <laughs> between about 1961 and 1969, the Warren Court was the most liberal court that we've ever had in American history. It shouldn't surprise you then that it was also the court most willing to protect the rights of criminal suspects and defendants. And everyone's familiar with some of those decisions. Miranda versus Arizona in 1966, they required that police give warnings before interrogating somebody who's in police custody. That's a Miranda warning. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Gideon versus Wainwright that I mentioned in 1963, that said that people have a right to counsel when they're being tried in state court. Hmm. Matt versus Ohio in 1961, that said that if police engage in an illegal search, the evidence they gain must be excluded. But I said yes and no. We've got to also remember that it was the Warren Court in 1968 that cited Terry v. Ohio that is what authorized police to engage in the practice of stop and frisk and so led to and so legitimated racialized policing. It involved the, the idea of reasonable suspicion, which we hear about to this very day. Yes. The Fourth Amendment says that the police can stop and search somebody only if there's, quote, probable cause. And the issue in Terry versus Ohio is, should police be able to stop and frisk somebody with much less than probable cause? Case involved two men who were walking on a public sidewalk in Cleveland. All they were doing was walking on the sidewalk. A police officer saw them and thought they might be casing the joint. I don't think it's coincidence. The two men were black and the officer was white. The officer took, stopped the men, frisked them, found guns. And the question is, should the guns be excluded as evidence because it was an illegal stop, an illegal search? And the Supreme Court ruled if police have, quote, reasonable suspicion, much less than probable cause would require, they can stop and search people. Take what happened in New York. There was a lawsuit, Floyd versus City of New York, that documented how the NYPD had used stop and frisk. And it documented the tremendous racial disparity with blacks and Latinos being stopped so much more often than whites, holding all other variables constant. Interestingly, as a result of that case, there was a settlement. Stop and frisk by the NYPD was eliminated. And there was no increase in crime in New York as a result. But we, we continue to hear about cases like this, for example, uh, most recently about Elijah McClain, a young black man who was put in a ch chokehold while he was walking home from a convenience store. And he hadn't 
done anything wrong, and yet he wound up being killed by the the uh, the police and and by uh, some medical people who were brought in. Now, I know, I'm wondering whether that would we'd even be talking about that if the George Floyd situation hadn't occurred. And in the past, would this just simply have uh, fallen by the wayside? There's so many instances like that that never attract media attention. As you know, I start the book with the story of the chokehold mm-hmm. in a Supreme Court case from 1983 where the court refused to stop police from using the chokehold. The court didn't deny that the chokehold is dangerous and even unconstitutional. Instead, what the court said was the plaintiff in the lawsuit, Adolf Lyons, could not show that he was likely to be choked again in the future, so he couldn't sue for an injunction. No one can show that he or she is likely to be choked by the police in the future, so no one can ever sue in court. And as a result of that, the chokehold continues. In the example that you mentioned, what happened to Eric Garner, what happened to George Floyd. Some cities have now outlawed their police from using the chokehold. All should do so. There was a bill that passed the House of Representatives last year that would outlaw police from using the chokehold, except if necessary, protect the office life or safety. I would hope that that would be passed. But because the Supreme Court allowed the chokehold, uh, many police departments even included in their training? They do. Um, Los Angeles Police Department for years instructed police officers on two different kinds of chokeholds. They continued to instruct the officers on this, even as deaths were mounting in Los Angeles from the use of the chokehold. And almost all of those who died in Los Angeles were black men. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Erwin Chemerinsky, whose latest book is Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. It's published by LiveRight. So uh, the Warren Court, uh, you say, was a, an aberration, uh, but not total? Well, the Warren Court was an aberration, and it was the court in all of American history that was most likely to protect the rights of criminal suspects and criminal defendants. But there are certainly instances like Terry versus Ohio, where the Warren Court, I think, felt prey to the public pressure of the time and didn't provide controls on police. In fact, what the Warren Court did in Terry versus Ohio has made it such that today the police can stop virtually anybody at any time and the way this is done is so often based on race because uh, reasonable suspicion often involves people of color well reasonable suspicion is such an easy standard for the police to meet such an amorphous standard and the way the police often use their discretion is on the basis of race there's another supreme court case It came later in 1996, Wren versus the United States, which makes so clear it is for the police to stop any motorist at any time. It involved some men who were driving in a car. They stopped at a stop sign for what the police thought was an unusually long period of time, 25 to 30 seconds. And the police became suspicious and followed the car until it turned without a turn signal. The officers then pulled over the car for the traffic violation 
ordered the driver and the passenger out and searched the car. Hmm. Undercover police officers in D.C. are not supposed to enforce traffic laws. The stop here for the traffic violation was just a pretext so the police could search the car for drugs. But the Supreme Court ruled it was fine. The court said once the police see somebody violated traffic law, they can pull over the car, they can order the driver and passenger out, they can do a search, even though the traffic stop is a pretext. Well, if you think about it, if police follow any of us driving long enough, they're going to see us change lanes without a turn signal or go a mile over the speed limit or not stop quite long enough at the stop sign and if that is a basis for a stop. But you also, uh, not just you, but uh, statistics indicate uh, that that's much more likely to be the case if the driver is a person of color. That's exactly right. Every time I teach criminal procedure or constitutional law, I hear from my students of color, and especially the black men in the class, how they've been stopped by police for nothing but driving while black. Again, studies have been done in every major city, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, smaller cities like Greensboro, North Carolina, that are stunning in terms of how much more often black and brown people get stopped by the police than whites, even though it turns out that when whites are stopped, it's more likely that they have weapons or contraband. Well, can we blame the Supreme Court for this? Yes, I think the Supreme Court deserves a large share of the blame. And the reason is the Supreme Court should say that stops can't be based on a pretext. That when it's clear that the police goal was something other than traffic enforcement, that isn't permissible. What we should do is say that the standard for police stops is what the Fourth Amendment prescribes. Probable cause, not reasonable suspicion. Well, to give you another example, 90% of warrantless police searches are because the police say that the person gave consent. We should require that it be written consent, not just the police word that consent was given. A, A number of cities in North Carolina did that, and they found a dramatic decrease in searches and consent searches. My students are always shocked when they read the cases where it said that the person consented for the police to say, search the trunk when there's dead bodies in the trunk or huge quantity of drugs in the trunk. Why did the person consent? Or did the police even lie and make it up? One step to take to better control the police would be require written consent for searches. Weren't conservatives infuriated by many of the Warren court decisions, uh, leading Richard Nixon to promise that if if he was elected, he'd appoint justices who favored law and order and uh, and the police rather than the criminals? That's exactly what happened. The decisions of the Warren court that we talked about earlier were seen as handcuffing the police. It was also a time of high crime rates. There was a time when there were the riots in major cities across the country, Newark, Detroit, Chicago, Los Angeles. And Richard Nixon ran in 1968 against the Warren Court. He said he wanted law and order. He said he would appoint strict constructionist justices. I think that helps to explain why the court decided 
Terry versus Ohio the way it did in 1968. It was the most liberal court ever. The majority included Earl Warren, who wrote Brown versus Board of Education, liberal lion, William Brennan, Thurgood Marshall, the greatest civil rights lawyer in history. And they created this power for stop and frisk. And I think it was a reaction to the tremendous criticism of the Warren court decisions and the political pressure. Of course, Richard Nixon won. He got to appoint four justices between 1969 and 1971. He picked four very conservative justices, and they went much further in empowering the police than we'd ever seen the Supreme Court go before. They were able to form a majority with Byron White, who was a Kennedy appointee. Uh, and they began to reverse things. Was was White, even though he was uh, supposedly a Democrat, was he that conservative? White was a conservative. He was one of the two dissenters in Roe versus Wade. He was one of the dissenters and wrote the leading dissent in Miranda versus Arizona. We today think of the justices appointed by Republican presidents as conservatives, and the justice appointed by Democratic presidents is liberals. But that's a new phenomenon, at least to the extent to which it exists now. Until very recently, we had justices on the Supreme Court who were appointed by Republican presidents who were quite liberal. John Paul Stevens and David Souter would be recent examples. We had justices appointed by Democratic presidents who were much more conservative. You can think here of Felix Frankfurter or Byron White. Our country is much more politically polarized now, and also ideology plays a far greater role in judicial picks. We also heard the phrase originalist. Uh, this was a, uh, Nixon was at the beginning of the time when so-called originalist justices were appointed. What was the originalist rationale? An originalist is one who believes that the meaning of a constitutional provision is fixed when it's adopted and can be changed only by amendment. So the view of an originalist would be that, say, the Fourth Amendment means the same thing today as it was adopted in 1791. What's cruel and unusual punishment, the Eighth Amendment means the same thing as it was adopted in 1791, or equal protection under the 14th Amendment means what was adopted in 1868. So Justice Scalia, an originalist justice, said, equal protection doesn't protect women from discrimination because that wasn't the original understanding in 1868. But that original flies against, uh, against uh, reason. So uh, that doesn't matter to them? I mean, their, our view, uh, their view is that a constitutional provision means the same thing today is when it was adopted. And if equal protection was meant only to protect against race discrimination when it was enacted, that's all it does today. And Justice Scalia said on several occasions, he thought that the Equal Protection Clause didn't safeguard women or anybody other than racial minorities from discrimination. And so they would say, when it comes to the Fourth Amendment, what's a search? It's what it was in 1791 when the Fourth Amendment was adopted. I'll give you an example. Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Neil Gorsuch, who are originalists, believe that the Fourth Amendment was adopted only was meant to stop the police from engaging in a physical trespass on someone's property without a warrant. So for them, 
electronic surveillance that doesn't involve a physical trespass, doesn't involve a search. It isn't something that requires a warrant under the Fourth Amendment. That's not the majority holding of the Supreme Court, but that's an example of what originalists believe. How culpable was this known when Thomas was uh, uh, being uh, confirmed by the Senate? Uh, Joe Biden headed that Senate committee that confirmed Clarence Thomas to the court nearly 30 years ago in 1991. Um, is he culpable in any way for what's happened since? Yes, it was known that Thomas was an originalist and there was strong opposition to his confirmation because just four years earlier in 1987, the Senate rejected Robert Bork because of his being an originalist. So I think what Joe happened Bork, there? What, do you think that race was a factor because uh, uh, Thomas was replacing a, 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 a much loved black justice? Yes, I think that was a key part of the political reality of the situation. The civil rights groups made it very clear in 1987 that if the Southern senators, and we're talking about then Southern Democratic senators that existed, voted in favor of Bork, they would never get the support of the black community again. So Southern Democrats of the time, like Sam Nunn in Georgia, or David Boren in Oklahoma, voted against the confirmation of Robert Bork. The civil rights organizations did not come out against Clarence Thomas in the same way. And the Southern Democrats, like Sam Nunn and David Boren, who had voted against Robert Bork, voted in favor of Clarence Thomas. Thomas was confirmed by a margin of 52 to 48. It would have made all the difference if the Southern Democrats who had voted against Bork then had voted against Thomas as well. And we're talking about just a four-year period. We're talking about the same senators who voted against Bork voted in favor of Thomas. So the Warren court was replaced by the Berger court, Warren Berger. How much of an influence does the chief justice have over all of this? The chief justice is one of nine. The chief justice gets to assign who writes the majority opinion when the chief is in the majority. The chief does play a role in setting the conference list, what cases the court will consider taking. But the chief only gets one vote. On Wednesday night, we saw that Chief Justice Roberts dissented along with Breyerson and Kagan and wanted to enjoin the Texas law. But the five more conservative justices, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, wouldn't go along with the chief on this one. Still, isn't today's Roberts Court considered the most conservative since the Vincent Court of the 1940s and early 50s? Oh, I think it's the most conservative court since that which existed in the early and mid-1930s. I think it is as conservative on the issues of this day as any Supreme Court in history has been on the issue of its day. The issues in the 1920s and 30s were different than the ones today, but it was a very conservative court relative to the ideology of that time. The current Supreme Court is very conservative. Just look at what it did on Wednesday night. How often does it reverse liberal court decisions, lower court decisions? Well, if you're talking about lower courts, the current Supreme Court fairly frequently reverses the lower court. Take, for example, the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. That's the Federal Court of Appeals on the West Coast. 
Now, there are 10 Trump judges on the Ninth Circuit, so I don't want to overstate its liberalism, but the Supreme Court frequently reverses the Ninth Circuit. In terms of reversing earlier Supreme Court precedent, we certainly see that from the court, and I think we're going to see it this year when I predict the Supreme Court overrules Roe versus Wade. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Chemerinsky, C-H-E-M-E-R-I-N-S-K-Y, the dean of the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. He has written a number of books, including The Conservative Assault on the Constitution, The Case Against the Supreme Court, and now Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. It is published by Live Right. And uh, a number of the people here at WBAI have asked me, well, does it really matter uh, what the Supreme Court does? Because if you have cops who are going to step over the line, then you're going to continue to have these problems. It matters enormously because most police will follow wherever the line is drawn. Let's take the chokehold as an example. If the Supreme Court had declared the chokehold unconstitutional in 1983, its use by the police would have tremendously decreased. I'm not saying no officer would have violated law and used it, but many fewer officers would use it. The result of that would be that maybe Eric Garner and George Floyd wouldn't have been killed. Or take the law with regard... But I want to stop just for a moment. Sure. Uh, one of the things, of course, that uh, was important in the Floyd case was that somebody filmed it. And has, is that changing the whole thing? Because in the past, uh, it wouldn't have been filmed and nobody and probably uh, Chauvin would have uh, just been excused. The filming mattered for just the reason you said. Without the video of what occurred, a jury conviction would be much less likely. But I also believe that a city that prohibits chokeholds will have many fewer police using chokeholds. I did a study of the LAPD uh, 20 years ago after the Rampart scandal, and I interviewed about 100 police officers. And overall, I was tremendously impressed. Many said to me the proudest day of their life was getting their badge. Also, I was impressed by their knowledge of constitutional law and what they could and couldn't do. There was a Supreme Court case five years ago that encouraged police to make illegal stops. It's the only way to see it. And several months later, the inspector general of a major city police department came to me with his staff and said, we're seeing a tremendous increase in illegal stops as a result of this Supreme Court decision. What, if anything, can we do about it? The police are aware of the law and they follow it. So yes, of course, there are going to be the bad officers or the officers who are overzealous and cross the line. But I think most officers will follow the line. Let me give you another example. 
is a result of some agreements between local police departments and the Federal Department of Justice, so-called consent decrees. In some police departments, officers have to record the race of everyone they stop. What's been observed is when police just have to do that, racial profiling decreases. Police are less likely to stop people just on account of being black or brown. This all shows that what the courts do, how we regulate the police, matters. Uh, one of the uh, interesting cases is Harlow versus Fitzgerald from 1982, which revised the legal standard for qualified immunity, something we've discussed on the show in the past, and made it more difficult to hold police officers responsible for excessive use of force and other civil rights violations. What was the Supreme Court's rationale for, for making that decision? I've been so interested to see what I always thought of as a technical concept that I teach to my students, qualified immunity, now be part of the popular vocabulary. And what people need to understand is qualified immunity isn't written to any statute. It doesn't come from the Constitution. The Supreme Court has said that when any government official is sued for money damages, there's always an immunity defense. For some officers, it's absolute immunity. If a police officer lies on the witness stand and that leads to the conviction of an innocent person, the police officer can't be sued for money damages, period. A judge for judicial acts, a prosecutor for prosecutorial acts, a legislator for legislative acts can never be sued for money damages. But all of the officers who don't have absolute immunity have qualified immunity. And as you said, from Harlow versus Fitzgerald, they can be held liable only if they violate clearly established law that every reasonable officer should know. Hmm. And increasingly, the Supreme Court has made it like absolute immunity. What was the rationale? To protect officers from liability. Even when they step over the line? Even when they act unconstitutionally. Even when they, their actions lead to the death or serious injury to innocent people. The officer is protected by qualified immunity, they're liable only if the officer is deemed to violate clearly established law that every reasonable officer should know. The court's decisions haven't only prevented citizens from getting injunctions against the future use of practices like chokeholds, haven't they also made it almost impossible for people who've been victims of police brutality to win civil suits seeking compensation because of technical rulings based on, on concepts like standing? Yes. I mean, to go back to the chokehold example, and something we were talking about earlier, Adolf Lyons was a 23-year-old black man who was stopped by Los Angeles police officers during a burnt-out taillight. An officer ordered Lyons out of the car. The officer slammed Lyons' hands above his head on the roof of the car. Lyons complained that the keys he was holding cut into the skin of his palm. An officer thought that Lyons was, quote, mouthing off and administered a chokehold on Lyons. The officer put his forearm around Lyons' neck and squeezed until Lyons was unconscious. Lyons awoke. He had urinated and defecated. He was spitting blood and dirt. The officer gave Lyons a ticket and let him go. Lyons discovered that 16 people in Los Angeles, almost all like him, black men, had died from police use of the chokehold. He sued 
to get an injunction to stop the LAPD from using the chokehold, except if necessary, protect the officer's life or safety. But the Supreme Court ruled that Lyons lacked standing to sue because he couldn't show he choked again in the future. And who would have uh, had standing? No one. That's the problem. Would, would the, uh, the, the mayor of the city or the governor or no. people in Congress? No, because in order to have standing to sue federal court, a person has to prove that he or she has been or imminently will be injured. And when it comes to wanting an injunction, you have to show that you personally are likely to be hurt in the future. The mayor, the governor, the member of Congress can't show this. Somebody who's already been choked by the police, like Adolph Lyons can't show, they're choked again in the future. This isn't just about the chokehold. There are many abusive police practices that can't be stopped by an injunction because no one can show is likely to to them. There were a couple of cases in different cities that involved police departments that were subjecting women to strip searches when they were stopped for routine traffic violations. And women who have been subjected to this degrading, horrific practice brought a suit for an injunction. But the lower court said they can't show they're going to be stopped and strip searched into the future. Therefore, they can't seek an injunction. So if something uh, can't be predicted, then you, you can't prevent it. What the Supreme Court has said is anyone who wants an injunction in order to have standing has to show that it's likely to happen to them again in the future. We'll give you another example from a different context. When something arose in New York, Congress passed law that allows the National Security Agency to intercept communications between people in the United States and those in designated foreign countries. It allows the NSA to listen to the phone conversations, to read the email. And a lawsuit was brought challenging this. Lawyers said, we can't communicate with our clients. We have to protect the attorney-client privilege. And we don't know whether our conversation is accepted. Journalists were part of the lawsuit, saying we can't talk to our sources. Business people brought a challenge. The Supreme Court dismissed for lack of standing. Justice Alito wrote for the court and said, none of these people can show that the NSA has intercepted their communications or is likely to do so in the future. The NSA doesn't tell people when it's intercepting their communications. Thus, the court said, no standing. If Derek Chauvin had decided to appeal uh, the, uh, his conviction, could that case have gone all the way up to the Supreme Court? I don't know that Derek Chauvin's not going to appeal his conviction. I, my expectation is he will appeal, just given the length of the sentence that's been imposed on him. Um, and if he has federal constitutional claims, those can go all the way to the Supreme Court. Based on what I know I don't think there are strong, appealable federal constitutional issues, but we should stay tuned and watch on this. Uh, is it likely that the current court will decide any cases in a way that will lead to meaningful reform of police practices? I don't see it coming from the current court. It's a court with five staunch conservative justices and one moderate conservative justice. And conservatives at least in recent decades, have tended to be very pro-law enforcement. Well, let me put it to you another way. 
none of the staunch conservative justices, in any opinion, has ever expressed concern about policing in the United States or how racialized policing is in the United States. That's why I argue in the book, we have to look for other avenues for meaningful controls on the police. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Erwin Chemerinsky, whose latest book is Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. It's published by Live Right. Well, um, are these uh, decisions binding if Congress or state legislatures or even municipal governments enact rules that govern police misbehavior? When the Supreme Court says there's no constitutional right, there still can be statutory rights, and there can be rights under state constitutions. So take as a chokehold an example. Even though the Supreme Court hasn't outlawed the chokehold as unconstitutional, Congress could pass a law saying no police in the country can use chokeholds. In many cities, so there are police commissions, city councils, have outlawed their police from using the chokehold. Even though the Supreme Court says a search based on pretext doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment, many state Supreme Courts, Arkansas, Washington State, have said pretextual police searches violate their state constitutions. So we have many sources of law to protect us besides the Constitution, Congress, state legislatures, city councils, police commissions, state courts under state constitutions can do so. Well, how would an originalist even explain a defense of chokeholds? Uh, chokeholds, I don't think, were even uh, an issue when the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were written. But to me, that's the absurdity of originalism. How can we apply the Fourth Amendment and search and seizure to things like the police using satellites to monitor whereabouts or how can we use the Fourth Amendment when what the police are doing is getting cellular location information because our cell phones are constantly connecting to towers and the police could then find out where we are at any point in time? I think that's the absurdity of trying to say a document written in 1787 should mean the exact same thing in 2021. Although the statistics indicate that most police violence is directed toward minorities, aren't equal protection rules usually overlooked? Well, you're right that most police violence is directed at people of color. The statistics about that are stunning and disturbing. I wish that the courts had said that racial profiling denies equal protection. Mm -hmm. But did you know there's not a single Supreme Court case in history that ever makes that simple statement that racial profiling, the police stopping people because they're black or brown more than they're white, violates the Constitution? What are your thoughts about the calls for defunding law enforcement agencies? I think we need to be careful about vocabulary here. Sometimes what that means is abolish the police. And there are those who advocate abolishing the police. I strongly oppose that. I am not anti-police. I believe that every society needs law enforcement for the sake of security. I'm struck by, even in communities of color, opinion polls show very little support for abolishing police. 
Now, defunding police might have a different meaning. It might say, let's take some of the functions that have traditionally done by police and transfer them to other agencies. In other words, when somebody is having some kind of a psychological issue uh, and the cops are called with guns, even though really what would be better is if a psychiatrist came. Exactly. Some of the mental health services probably better performed by somebody other than an armed police officer. Berkeley, where I am right now, is considering having a separate force enforce traffic laws rather than armed police officers. So these are things that we might explore and could be under the vocabulary defunding police. But I just want to be clear, and I argue in the book, that we need to have police in society. And I worry that if ever a community would try to defund police, it would just lead to the more privileged hiring private security forces that then don't even have to comply with the Constitution. Well, who would wind up arresting killers, for example, or, or bank robbers? You'd, you'd exactly. have, to have somebody going after them. Um, exactly. Well, but if, if the Supreme Court makes an awful decision, and it's made any number, right now there's, a, there's a talk about uh, Congress reversing uh, this Texas abortion decision. Is Congress the only place where awful decisions can be reversed? I think it's important to separate different kinds of awful decisions by the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court says there is a constitutional right involved, then Congress can't override it. But if the Supreme Court says there's no constitutional right, then Congress can or state legislature can. Let's take the example you mentioned of the Texas law that prohibits abortions after about the sixth week of pregnancy. The Supreme Court implicitly was saying no right is violated by the Texas law. Congress could step in and say, we by statute are going to protect a right of women to have abortions. The problem with that is political. I think Senate Republicans would filibuster it. And unless the Democrats are willing to change the filibuster, I don't see how that could get through the Congress. So here we are in a situation which uh, your book uh, reveals is, is quite unfair. What can we do? There's much that we can do. And this is what I'm saying. We can turn to the political process. Congress can adopt a law to reform policing. Bills pass the House of Representatives to do just this, but they're stalled in the Senate. State legislatures can adopt laws to reform policing. After the tragic death of George Floyd, many bills were introduced into the California legislature to reform policing in California. Sadly, none of them got adopted last year. City councils, police commissions can reform policing in their jurisdictions. State courts can enforce rights under their state constitutions. Also, there's a very important federal statute that allows the Justice Department to reform local police departments when there's a pattern and practice of rights violations. The Trump administration expressly refused to use that authority, but Attorney General Merrick Garland has said he'll resume using that statute. All of this can reform policing if we have the political will to do so. There have also been suggestions that we increase the number of justices. Uh, but since it's so political, even if that were the case, if you had uh, one party in control of Congress, wouldn't the new justices all be uh, members of that party? 
of course, if we increase the number of justices now from 9 to 11 or 13, the additional two or four justices would be appointed by President Biden and would be confirmed by the Senate. The problem, though, is that a bill to expand the size of the Supreme Court has to get through both the House and the Senate. Senate Republicans obviously would filibuster that. So there's no way we're going to get an expansion of the Supreme Court through Congress unless the rules of the filibuster are changed. Well, we saw what happened when uh, President Obama named Merrick Garland to uh, be a justice and um, politics prevented it from happening. How long can Congress uh, keep uh, stalling until some until a justice is, is brought in? As long as they want. There's nothing in the Constitution that would keep the, that from happening. Imagine if the, today one of the Democratic senators leaves office and is replaced by a Republican governor. So this isn't hypothetical. Imagine Patrick Lay, who's 87 years old, leaves the Senate, and his successor is picked by the Republican governor in Vermont. Or imagine this happens in Massachusetts, a Democratic senator is picked by a Republican governor. The Democrats then lose control of the Senate because it's now 50-50 with Kamala Harris, the vice president, breaking ties. And imagine that, say, Justice Breyer is 83, would leave the court. We know that the new Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, won't have hearings or confirm anyone Biden picks, even though we're in 2021 and it's three years until the next presidential election. And there's nothing that anyone can do to stop that. That's what we saw when Merrick Garland was appointed by President Obama in March of 2016. But Mitch McConnell said no hearings, no vote even though it was months before the November election. Can the filibuster be applied when we're discussing appointments to the Supreme Court? I want to distinguish between legislation that would increase the size of the court, where there is a possibility of filibuster, but there's no longer a filibuster for nominations of Supreme Court justices or Federal Court of Appeal or District Court judges or cabinet appointments. When President Obama was in office, the Senate eliminated the filibuster for federal court of appeals, district court judges, and cabinet officials. And then in the spring of 2017, when President Trump nominated Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court and the Democrats filibustered, Republicans eliminated the filibuster for the nomination. So a nomination for these offices isn't subject to filibuster legislation still is subject to filibuster. But is that a precedent? Can that be reversed again uh, and the filibuster be invoked if uh, the, 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 the majority party or the minority party doesn't uh, like what's, what's, uh, the person is being proposed? The filibuster is provided for by Senate rules, and the Senate can change its rules by majority vote. So if the Senate wants to reinstate the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations— it could change its rules to do so. Thank you so much for being on our show. This has been a fascinating conversation, at least for me. Uh, I've been talking with Erwin uh, Chemerinsky, who is the dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law, about his latest book called Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. It's published by Live Right. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was just wonderful talking with you.
And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to our live engineer, Richie Johnson, and to Leonard Lopez at Large Executive Producer, Jesse Lent, for all of their great work throughout the week. You can access our archives of over 500 past shows at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past interviews at LeonardLopezAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I go, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI by going online to give to wbai.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Please do it right now to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. because we need your help to keep this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored on the air. And why not make that call right now to ensure that this show and the station that brings it to you will be here in the years to come. And one great way to show your support for what we do on London Lopate at Large is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. They provide WBAI with a steady, stable source of support, something we need now more than ever. But however you choose to donate, what matters is that you join your fellow listeners who keep this alternative to corporate radio alive and well through their generosity. Again, the number to call to make your tax-deductible contribution is 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And uh, to all of you who have done it so far or are about to do it, thank you so much. And I hope you can join us again on Monday when journalist Julie K. Brown will discuss her groundbreaking reporting in her book, Perversion of Justice, the Jeffrey Epstein Story. Have a great weekend.